Hello and welcome to Pause Pop, positively pop culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm Katie Taylor. And I'm Carrie Gessner. And this week we're bringing you the second of two episodes talking about The Haunting of Bly Manor, plus a bunch of other versions of its source material, which is Henry James' novella Turn of the Screw. And we have special guest Aaron Chandler back to continue discussing it with us. Yes, please listen to the last week's episode for the first half of the discussion. And now here's our second. Same as last week, spoilers ahead. <laughs> That's really interesting because in The Innocence, Miss Giddens, yeah, her whole thing is, oh, all of this possession will go away if Miles just says aloud that Peter Quint is haunting him, which I always yeah. was like, what? How did she jump to that conclusion? But that makes a lot of sense when you put it in that context. Yeah. 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 And I think one of the re- one of the questions we posed earlier in this interview is that it's interesting that every adaptation is set in a different time period. And so few of them are set in, you know, the, the mid to late 1800s when the when the book was actually published. So mm-hmm. Each adaptation seems to be talking about what is the repression of this other specific time period. So the version I saw from the early 90s, in the early 90s, not so much huge amounts of repression necessarily, but in the early 60s, mm-hmm. sure. And in that adaptation, part of the repression is that the governess is actually, has actually fallen in love with the uncle yeah. and can't really admit that. So a lot of her psychological issues stem from that feeling that she can't express. And in The Innocence, that was made in the early 60s. So probably started, you know, planning and production in the late 50s. So thinking about what is repression of the late 50s and early 60s. And even though that version was set in the 1800s, they're still really playing with the idea of like, the very, very, very precipice of second wave feminism. Mm -hmm. And so what would that what would that look like? And so setting Bly Manor in the 80s, it's definitely about the precipice of third wave feminism and gay rights movements and whatnot and trying to come to terms with those elements of one's identity. I really need you to watch The Turning then so you can help, <laughs> you, so you can help me a little bit because it's set in the 90s okay, and specifically 1994. Okay. And that whole thing, the relationship between Peter Quint and Miss Jessel in that is very much told to be sexual assault so not an actual relationship and quint it's implied that he rapes her and then he he strangles her and then he puts her body in the lake and mrs gross finds out and it's implied that mrs gross then kills peter quint (laughs) oh nice i found that to be a really interesting interpretation of that Mm. but i'm curious about what you would think about that I would have to see it, but I yeah. also feel like having that be produced post Me Too mm-hmm. is important. So that's speaking to things going on now. But also, like, again, that third wave feminist era where that kind of thing, like the entire Riot Girl movement of the early 90s is about reclaiming your identity and also proclaiming the fact that sexual violence happens and that we need to resist it. And so that totally tracks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not cool, but, you know, thank you for for the explanation. (laughs) Something else that that I think is interesting about setting it in different time periods is how that affects how you see 
the oldness of the house mm. and how that how that plays into it as as a haunting story and a ghost story like in the innocence where it's set in the the 19th century it's like the, the setting that they're in isn't isn't kind of anachronistic at all mm-hmm. and i like they get kind of but they weave in this like death and decay all over the house. Like there are flies and bugs and dead flowers everywhere as, you know, jumping out and being like, this is a symbolism. (laughs) (laughs) This is a symbolism. (laughs) That's cute. I love that. Whereas in, in something like Bly Manor, you see this house that's well kept up, but kind of the way of life there seems sort of a, a remnant of something of the past mm. and of something that's kind of holding on to to a past that isn't that isn't typical anymore that i think kind of lends itself to the sense of isolation of the house and and that kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah i think talking about that the house itself kind of speaks to this as being an anthology series in the first season being about the haunting of hill house and the sets are very similar. And I think that, you know, the showrunners are trying to equate this idea that a house is symbolic of the family that inhabits it mm-hmm. and the, the multiplicity of those families and things get sort of trapped and lodged there. And it's not maybe so much about genealogy of your own family, but the genealogy of the inhabitants of the house. And I, I don't know. I don't know that I have much more to say about that, but it, it, I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that too. And I think that it's interesting that in... In the innocence and in the turn of the screw, and maybe also in the turning, I don't know. The cast of characters is so much more limited, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which creates this sense of everyone being really isolated in this house, yeah. mm-hmm. and there being like no one they can go to for help, and being cut off from, just being cut off. And I think that that is part of also the ambiguity about the governess's reliability, is that she's. You know, what what's her mind doing in this state of isolation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Bly Manor, you've got this little this little kind of found family hanging out in the house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Bly Manor is instead of being about isolation, is all about connection and all about mm-hmm. the people that you love and and family. And so I think that's a really interesting difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will say in the turning. There is very much that sense of isolation, even stronger than I got in The Innocence, because Mrs. Gross in The Turning is not a sympathetic character. She does not take to Kate at all. She doesn't help her out. It's not like having a confidant like in The Innocence. And there is some some additional strangeness around the estate, because Flora will not leave the estate. And Kate suggests taking her out for ice cream to town. And Mrs. Gross is just like, no, absolutely not. Flora does not leave the estate. (laughs) And and then when they try to go into town a little bit later on, Miles has to coax Flora into the car. And then as they're getting going down the the drive and they hit the gates, Flora has a meltdown pretty much. And because it's set in the 90s, there are landlines. And Kate has a roommate back home that she talks to once in the house and i think she gets the sense that or she just feels like she has been overheard and stuff so the next time she talks to the roommate and the only other time she has to go to town and use a payphone so yeah i just 
I don't know. There's something there, but <laughs> I don't know exactly well, yeah. what it is. <laughs> I was going to actually ask you all if you think that this would work being set now when there's, you know, I mean, we're dealing with isolation from the pandemic, but we're obviously, you know, very much communicating with others outside of our own household all the time through internet technology and obvious like better telecommunications and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Could you actually have a story like Turn of the Screw or to, to look at another thing that's about isolation in a creepy house or creepy residence is The Shining and that happening in the 70s, you know, these these things that are contingent upon people being communication isolated, mm -hmm. could that even happen now? Could we set this in 2021? If they were, if they had really bad Wi-Fi, if they were in a different <laughs> town, or I, I was going to say, or also something that kind of struck me about the, the governess in the turn of the screw is how she thinks like a conspiracy theorist. Oh. She reaches a conclusion and everything that she sees from that point on like, I don't remember the point that made me go, oh, no, the first time that I read The Turn of the Screw, but this time it was the line. It seems to me, indeed, in retrospect, that by the time the morrow's sun was high, I had restlessly read into the facts before us almost all the meaning they were to receive from subsequent and more cruel occurrences. Oh, oh, <laughs> wow. That, that's QAnon. Yeah. <laughs> right there. So, like, everything that she sees from then on is only going to support her theory. And she's going yeah. to, you know, drag Mrs. Gross along with her in it mm -hmm. by being like, don't you see? It's obviously this. Whew. So if she got onto some message boards. <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, those are good points. Wow. Also, can I just, I mean, to, to maybe shift gears just a tiny bit, I do want to mention that the character of Owen is the best addition yes. to this story mm -hmm. ever. He is a treasure. I love him. <laughs> I I want to read some good Owen Mrs. Gross fanfic later. Yeah. <laughs> Owen and Jamie both are just precious. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I especially love Owen's puns. Yeah. <laughs> Can't escape those. But yeah, that I did want to circle back to Aaron's point about this really being about a found family. Yes. And the connections that people forge. Mm -hmm. Because even when things are going wrong with, with Rebecca and, and Peter, you can see that everyone really cares about each other. And Jamie confronts Rebecca and is like, is this really like what you want? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, first of all, I really love the character of Danny. I think... She is just, she really just touched me for some reason. And I think part of that is wrapped up in in what she says in episode one or two, I think. And Miles tries to scare her with a spider and she's not scared. And then she's like, you know what? I'm a lot braver than people think. And I was just like, whoa, yes, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. And that she says that while she's still experiencing these visions of her dead ex-fiance. Right. And is kind of living in this in this state of anxiety about that. And I like the way that that implies that you can be anxious, you can struggle with with your mental health and with anxiety, and still and still live with it. And and the act of living with it is being brave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I just really love the idea of she she was always always told what she was going to be in life. You know, everyone expected her to marry her best friend. So when he asked her, she was like, okay, sure. <laughs> Even though it wasn't really what she wanted. And then she 
breaks out on her own and she ends up at Bly and she really does sort of drop into this family and they become, you know, really, really important to her. So I just, I, yeah, I love the found family aspect of it. And I like that the way that that makes it so that when they say at the end that this isn't a ghost story, it's a love story. It's yeah. not just a romantic love story. It's about all these different kinds of love mm-hmm. that all the characters cry, have guys. for each other. Oh, it's so <laughs> yes. good. It's so good. I love this so much. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give a little shout to Victoria Pedretti for mm-hmm. giving such a nuanced, beautiful performance. And she was also Nell in Haunting of Hill House. Yes. But if you want to see a really way different role for her was the second season of You (laughs) as Love Quinn. That was like, I'd seen, I saw these in order. So I saw Haunting of Hill House and was like, oh, she's so sweet and sensitive and whatever. And then You, I'm like, oh, I hate her. She's horrible. (laughs) And then I went back to loving her again with Blind Manor. So she's (laughs) running the gamut with her career. There you go. And those are really only the major things she's done. So she's really... Mm -hmm. I think established a great career for herself so far. Yeah, I think she she actually went to the same college I went to. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I was like, oh, we were in the same city at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> you could have passed her in the street. I know, right? But I think she really, yeah, she got picked up like right out of college for a Hill House and then sort of took off from there. And I, I wanted to point out that because it's an anthology series, some of the same actors from Hill House are in Bly Manor. So there's Victoria Pedretti. Oliver Jackson Cohen played Luke in Hill House, and he plays Peter in in this. And he's got a Scottish accent, and he's terrible. He's a terrible man. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got Henry Thomas, who played the dad, Hugh, in Hill House, and he plays Henry, the uncle, here. You have Kate Siegel, who was Theo in Hill House, and now she's Viola. So she's only in one episode. Or, well, I guess well, her ghost appeared. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Her face is only in one episode. Yeah, her face. <laughs> and then Carla Gugino played the mom, Olivia, in Hill House, and she plays the storyteller here. And I know KW loves Carla Gugino. <laughs> no. <laughs> she was fine here. Uh, we have a little running joke yeah. about how I don't like Carla Gugino <laughs> because she's not... Um, she's not that other actress that I always get her mixed up with. Paul Marshall? Yeah. Anyway, doesn't matter. (laughs) She was fine here. But Raul Cooley as Owen, he was also in iZombie. He is a treasure on Twitter and (laughs) loves to retweet people who cosplay his characters. And it's just like so supportive. And he loves that, you know, that some of his characters in these genre fiction pieces, he's trying to make it a little bit more normalized to have people of South Asian descent be seen as heroic leads and things. And I just think that's great. And if I were casting my novel, The Curiosity Killers, I would have him play my lead character, Ben, um, because I think he's just a delight. So anyway. <laughs> he is. Yeah. He loves Star Wars a lot, which I enjoy because I yes. follow him on Twitter too. <laughs> ah, yes. They need to cast him in a Star War then. Yes. I think yeah. he would be down for that Absolutely, for sure. Yeah. He's the best part of my zombie. I just, he's great. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> but Henry Thomas, really, I, I wish... I don't know when this is going to be eligible for Emmy nominations, but Henry Thomas deserves something for that episode, The Jolly Corner. Mm-hmm. I thought he was particularly good in that. So, Yeah. And I, I really do just enjoy that, that these are the same actors playing different characters, and it, it lends that sense of continuity to the anthology. 
Another thing that lends continuity is the soundtrack. They're both scored by the Newton brothers. And as you guys both know, I just found out last week that I've been listening to the Bly Manor soundtrack and there are tracks called the beginning of the end movement five, six, and seven. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Like, why start at five? And it's because one through four are on the Hill House soundtrack. So the the sound of the shows really lends some continuity too. Very cool. I hope they do another season. Who? Okay, so what, if they were going to adapt another ghost story for a season three, and I know the producers have said they're not, they have no immediate plans to do another season, but if they did, what would be a good ghost story to adapt this time? Mm-mm. That's a good question. I mean, the turn of the screw always makes me think about Jane Eyre. Mm. Which I think would only really be interesting if they made some big changes, I think, to the to the core. Like story. putting ghosts in it. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I mean there's there's quote unquote ghosts in Jane Eyre. It's, yeah, yeah. it's metaphorical, it's the heaviness of responsibility and past <laughs> trauma but it's not yeah <laughs> do you have a better answer Erin? <laughs> no <laughs> that's the problem <laughs> you know i think it would actually and i'm just thinking of this because i mentioned that that i taught beloved instead of this if they did something like that hmm. it would have to be like a completely completely different cast completely different setting but something more in the that would allow them to, to work with more people of color like that. And it's a similar yeah. kind of story where there's an ambiguous ghost. Mm. Yeah. Where my students didn't want there to be ambiguity. <laughs> Same. I, I relate to them, okay? <laughs> ambiguity <laughs> makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, it just makes it makes discussion kind of come to a halt sometimes. And you have to just be like, okay, but what if it's not a real ghost? <laughs> Let's just follow me down this path for a minute. <laughs> I I don't have a particular story in mind, but Edith Wharton has written a book of ghost stories, oh. and I, I personally would love if they adapted those. But yeah, I'd have to let me let me read through them, and I'll call up Mike Flanagan and be like, I think you should do this story. <laughs> <laughs> well, but like like Henry James, they could do multiple in the same yeah. plot arc, mm-hmm. and just kind of make individual episodes be themed with one of those stories. Yeah. They're sort of similar in tone. I Sort of along the lines of what you were saying, Erin, I think that Octavia Butler's Kindred is not a ghost story, but it's it's a story where there's a lot of ambiguity and time shifting and, and that you would need a more diverse cast, which would be great. And it shows like the, the idea of a family's history of trauma in a single home. Mm-hmm. So I think that could be good, but it's more time travel than ghosts. But there's a question of whether the time travel is really real or not. So that might that might be kind of interesting. And I don't think anybody's ever adapted that before. Hmm. Well, and there's ghost stories and time travel stories are so intimately connected anyway. Mm-hmm. Like the line, like the big line from Bly Manor, it's not a ghost story, it's a love story, is actually a line that was in a Doctor Who episode. Oh. Back when Matt Smith was in it. I looked it up. It's called Hyde. Okay. And it's about these time travelers i think some of them a couple of them are aliens who one of them gets trapped in a pocket universe and the haunting is them trying to get back okay to their loved one from the pocket universe 
Oops. I, yeah, I sort of remember that episode now that you say that. That's sweet. I, lo- I still, I love that line. I'm never going to Yeah, it's a really good line. line. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's true of so many ghost stories that so many of the best ones are love stories because, mm-hmm. like, you invent a ghost story to try to bridge that ultimate gap to bring a person back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, something that I thought was interesting in Bly Manor is that, like, you have all of these love relationships, but then you also have kind of the toxic love relationships. Yeah. Like, between Peter Quint and Miss Jessel, Peter Quint and Miles. And I was like, and they're not, it's because they're, those aren't love relationships, they're possessive relationships. And then I realized that those are the people that he literally possesses. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then when we see when we see his relationship with his mother play out, mm-hmm. that's clear where that comes from, and that the, that that's where he ends up getting trapped multiple times. So he's just repeating cycles that he's yeah. he was raised in, right? Which is also, and and everyone who's a ghost is also repeating cycles. Yeah. So all of the haunting stuff is just like there's so much so much metaphor and so much like and at the end. Danny, like being haunted because she potentially either literally haunted or haunted because she's unable to escape that trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because like the the ghost is showing up in the same ways that her ex fiance ghost kept showing up. Yeah, like ghost stories are are su- such kind of an interesting sideways way to get into talking about trauma and and love relationships and toxic relationships and all the different ways that people can be quote unquote haunted by things in life. Yeah. I, I really love in episode three, there's a a short scene between Danny and Jamie and they're talking about Peter and Rebecca and Jamie says how toxic the relationship was. And I think Danny says something like, yeah, people really do mix up love and ownership. Don't they? Mm-hmm. And I think it's yeah, it's a it's the quote unquote bad characters treat love as an object and something to to possess, whereas the the characters who we are are rooting for learn that that's not that's not really what love is, and you have to let people grow and you don't own them. So yeah, there's a very big comparison drawn between. Peter and Rebecca and Danny and Jamie. Uh, and the way that, that that gets manifested in the ways that people get possessed where you, when there's like, when it's, when the possession happens in, like the, the consent is so essential when it happens for mm. a good reason that it has to be, it's you, it's me, it's us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then also sometimes like they say that, but it's in, it's in that toxic way. Right. Yeah. And just as a side note, we haven't shouted out Amelia Eve as Jamie yet. And I, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) and she does a fantastic job. I think, like we said, she's a great addition to, to the story. So. And who's the actress who plays Mrs. Gross? Oh yeah. I don't actually know how to pronounce her first name, but I think it's Tania Miller. Yes. Okay. And yeah, she's wonderful. She was also in Russell T. Davis' Years and Years that came out in maybe, like, 2019, and she was very good in that, too. Cool. Yeah, I, 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 that's been on my list. Erica really liked that. 
And then Tahira Sharif played Miss Jessel. And I guess if we're if we're doing everyone, Amelia B. <laughs> Smith played Flora, and she's also the voice of Peppa Pig. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and Benjamin Evan Ainsworth played Miles, and they are both delightful and slightly creepy at times, but very yeah. adorable. They both did really, really good job. Yeah. Whenever you make a version of Turn of the Screw, Flora and Miles, you have to make them as as creepy but cute as mm-hmm. possible. And that is a fine, fine line. Yeah. yeah. I don't really think the innocence hit that with Miles. I thought he was just straight up creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that when I when I taught that, I didn't always show it, but I would sometimes show the very ending to my students after they had read it and ask them, do you think this version of the governess, did she kill him? Was it an accident? Did he have a heart attack? And they were always just sort of confused, disturbed, and yeah. we're not sure what to think. But that, that end scene of The Innocence is really, really upsetting. So, yeah, it yeah. is really. And when I read the book, I 100% thought, oh, she killed him. Yeah. Oh. But they don't, like, they show it kind of a literal, like, what's literally on the page is what they do, what they show in The, in the Innocence, mm-hmm. which is, like, he collapses and then she kind of grabs him. Yeah, and I felt I felt more ambiguous about what actually happened to him in The Innocence than I did in the book. Yeah. But I felt I did feel so bad for him when he was looking around being like, "Where is he?" <laughs> that was definitely uncomfortable. Like at the end of Bly Manor, I feel such peace and joy and sadness too because there's a lot of sadness wrapped up in that. But at the end of The Innocence, I was just like, I am uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I think maybe that's something that we could sort of close with is that what they were able to do with this version is to, even though there are sad things and lots of death, they were still able to give the viewer a sense of peace and hope and at least a little bit of contentment. And I think they also achieved that in their first season with Hill House, even though it was an emotional roller coaster both of these shows but i think that one of the the points that these producers are trying to make is that ghost stories can still have an ending that doesn't leave you feeling overwhelmingly depressed yes (laughs) yeah for sure (laughs) all right well that is a great place to end especially since we have talked for more than an hour (laughs) (laughs) so thank you so much to aaron for being with us thank you for having me you're welcome i thought this was a great conversation and There's so much more that we could talk about, but um, save it for next time, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) That was so much fun. Thank you again to Aaron for joining us. And next week, we are going to get into some new topics next week. We're going to be talking about the board game Illimat, the web series Critical Role, and the NBC sitcom Mr. Mayor. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at KWTaylorWriter. And me at Carrie Gessner. And you can find us together on Twitter at PausePopPodcast. If you'd prefer to email us, please do that at PositivelyPopCulture at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and safe. And join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. <laughs>